Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. This week, we are discussing the June 1990 disappearance of Connie Lynn Royce from the Mount Clemens area, north of Detroit. In May of 1990, just a week before Connie disappeared, another pretty blonde went missing from the Detroit area, 30-year-old Paige Renkowski. Paige was last seen alive in Canton, Michigan. Then she was allegedly spotted standing near her car on the side of Interstate 96 near Fowlerville. Paige's vehicle, a 1986 Oldsmobile, was still running. Her shoes were left behind inside the car. The Renkowski disappearance, so strange and that she was last seen on the side of a busy freeway on a sunny May afternoon, remains a mystery. And if Paige's story sounds familiar, we talked about her case when I covered another disappearance from the spring of 1990, the as-yet-unresolved April 22, 1990 disappearance of 17-year-old Chris Temple from the Rose Lake Research Area near Bath Township. If you would like to learn more about Paige and her disappearance, please check out my friend Robin Warder's coverage of her case in episode 22 of his podcast, The Trail Went Cold. However, Paige was not the only young woman to go missing under bizarre circumstances that summer. You've likely never heard of the subject of today's episode, Connie Lynn Royce, formerly Connie Bostick who went missing from Mount Clemens on a Friday night in June, walking away from her friends with only the clothes on her back, never to be seen again. Today's story takes us to Macomb County, the county seat of Macomb, in fact, Mount Clemens, to a popular bar and night spot called the Hayloft. The focus of today's episode, Connie Lynn Royce, and her last name is spelled R-O-Y-C-E, although if you look for her online, you'll see her name spelled R-O-Y-S-E. Connie was living with her parents in Madison Heights at the time of her disappearance. After a short-lived marriage, she'd returned to the family home to collect herself. And in the months prior to her disappearance, Connie had been dating someone, and they'd even moved in together, but the relationship was not working out. In fact, the relationship ended with a loud verbal disagreement where local police intervened. Now, their fight was not physical, but there was police record of the report from when they responded to the home where the argument took place. But by the end of May, that relationship was well and truly over. Connie met someone new, a guy named Greg, the two first met at a bar over Memorial Day weekend. They struck up a conversation and made plans to go out for drinks on Friday, June 1st. 
That Friday, Connie got dressed up for the date. She fixed her dark blonde hair, put on makeup and a pretty form-fitting black dress with a flared floral print skirt. Connie finished the outfit with a pair of black high-heeled shoes, grabbed her purse and headed out. Connie drove her car, a light blue 1980 Chevy Citation, to Greg's apartment in the nearby city of Sterling Heights. She would arrive at his place between 8.30 and 9 o'clock. When Connie made it to Greg's apartment, one of Greg's friends was there as well, a man that we will call Brad. The three of them had a few beers, priming the pump, so to speak, before heading out to the bar. Connie left her car at Greg's apartment, and they headed north to the hayloft to continue their evening. Now, the hayloft was a large and popular bar. They often had live music and were known for a great social scene. One of the interesting things about the hayloft is that they had video surveillance at the entrance. And this was unusual in 1990. Surveillance equipment was expensive, and you did not often find it at bars. The camera system meant that everyone who entered the bar had their movements tracked and recorded by the surveillance system. In addition to being recorded, everyone who entered the hayloft had to interact with the bouncer and pay a cover charge. I was able to view the footage from Connie's night at the hayloft, and for 29-year-old footage that originated on a video cassette recorder, it is amazingly clear. I have a couple of still images from that evening, and I will post them on our website, www.alreadygonepodcast.com. Connie, Greg, and Brad are seen entering the bar. And while Connie's relationship with Greg was just beginning, you can tell from their body language that they like each other. She gently touches his back and his shoulder, and the gesture is warm and affectionate. When the trio enters the hayloft, it's about 10 p.m., once inside the bar, they get a table and order more drinks. Their server, the bouncer, and the bartender will later tell police that nothing seemed amiss. There was no altercation, no drama, just three people hanging out together, listening to music, and having a couple of drinks. About 11 p.m., Greg excuses himself from the table to use the restroom. This leaves Connie and Brad at the table. Connie abruptly announces, I've got to get out of here, and walks away from Brad, leaving her purse behind. Connie is barefoot, and she is carrying her black high-heeled shoes in one hand. As Connie exits the bar, her gait flat-footed and awkward, her shoulder clips the wall as she rounds the corner. And just like that, Connie Lynn Royce, daughter of George and Mary Bostick, is gone. Brad is surprised by her announcement and her departure. He waits for Greg to return from the restroom and explains what happened. The pair leave the bar, searching outside for Connie. When they don't see her, they ask the bouncer, the parking lot attendant, other patrons, has anyone seen a blonde in a black dress? But no one saw where Connie went. The two men return to the bar and wait, hoping that she'll return. Now, much of this activity is verified not just by the videotape of the main entrance, but by staff at the bar who saw and interacted with the men that night. Greg and Brad searched for Connie. They asked after her and they waited for her, but she didn't come back. When the two men are interviewed by police a day later, their stories are consistent and they line up with what is reported by Hayloft staff. Connie left on her own. 
abandoning her handbag. The two men searched outside the bar for her and then returned to the bar to wait, figuring she'd come back for her purse. But 2 a.m., which is the time the bar closes, 2 a.m. arrives and there is no sign of Connie. They take her belongings and head back to Greg's apartment, where Connie's car, the blue Chevy, is parked right where she left it. On Saturday, police begin checking with businesses in the area to see if anyone saw or spoke with Connie. Employees at a Domino's Pizza, which is located about a block from the hayloft, they report that a woman matching her description was using the payphone that night. Connie's distinctive dress, with a black tank top and a floral print skirt, that helped her stand out from other women they may have seen that evening. Police try and pull records from the payphone, but they are unsuccessful in their attempt. If Connie made a collect call from that phone, which seems likely as she left the bar without her handbag, the call can't be tracked. Employees at Domino's mention a late model Ford, perhaps from the early 1970s, that it was parked near Connie when she was on the phone, but no one saw if she entered the car or if she left the area on foot. Remember, it's Friday night at the local pizza joint. That's a very busy shift. 1990 was really the start of the computer era. Personal computers were rare, but someone had access to a computer and made up a missing persons poster for Connie. Her friends and family would paper Mount Clemens with these flyers. The poster read, in part, quote, Last seen wearing a black mini dress and heels, walking from the Hayloft Bar downtown Mount Clemens at 11.15 Friday night, June 1st, 1990. Witness said she was alone at a payphone on Broadway near North River Road, walking toward the Holiday Inn. The flyer then asks that witnesses contact the Madison Heights Police Department. You see, because Connie lived in Madison Heights, but was last seen in Mount Clemens, there was a time period when both communities, both police departments, worked on her case. And listeners, I don't usually speculate about cases. I like to give you the information and let you puzzle it out. Let you decide where the story is headed. And in Connie's case, I can't help it. It's like she walked down the street and evaporated. So total was her disappearance. If you told me that something otherworldly went down in Mount Clemens that night, I just might believe you. When Mount Clemens police spoke with a parking lot attendant and others outside of the hayloft on Friday night, no one saw Connie leave the bar. The only sighting was at the payphone near the pizzeria. And I admit, it seems like a legitimate sighting. How many petite blondes in a black tank dress with a floral skirt were roaming Mount Clemens that evening? Hopefully, there was only one. And where did she go from there? And I keep thinking about that payphone. Connie must have called someone, telling them that she needed a ride. Maybe she told them that she screwed up and that she left the bar without her purse, but she didn't want to go back there. She may have told the person she called that she was cold. While temperatures were near 80 during the day, it was only 65 degrees at 11 p.m., and Connie wore only a sleeveless mini dress and heels. Again, while police tried to get call records from the payphone, they were unable to track calls that Connie could have made. And it's my understanding that collect calls may not have been tracked by Michigan Bell back in 1990. So maybe Connie did walk to the Holiday Inn, thinking she'd wait in the lobby for whoever she called for a ride. 
a warm, well-lit place for her to hang out until her ride showed up. Could she have contacted someone she trusted, only to fight with them and have the evening end in tragedy? With Connie dead and her body concealed somewhere? Or did Connie place a collect call and it was declined? Or the person she was calling wasn't home, leaving her alone in downtown Mount Clemens on Friday night? So she set out on foot, maybe a little drunk, maybe without a plan. Could she have walked toward the river, thinking that she could clear her head? And instead she slipped, falling into the water where she drowned, and her body wasn't recovered, even though divers would search for her. The Clinton River, which runs through Mount Clemens, winds and twists its way east, eventually emptying into Anchor Bay or Lake St. Clair, depending on if the body would float north or south. Could Connie have met her end in the water? A tragic accident? If she did end up in the water, I find it hard to believe that she would not have been found. Early June is prime boating season, and this is a busy, well-traveled area. The Clinton River skirts the south end of Selfridge Air Force Base, and Selfridge has been an active airbase since its inception in 1917. So Connie ending up in the water somehow is not my favorite theory, but I felt like it was worth mentioning because it is a possibility. When it comes to the investigation into her disappearance, police from both Mount Clemens and Madison Heights, they interviewed everyone they could, including her parents and siblings, Greg and Brad, employees from the Hayloft, her former boyfriend, and her former husband. But nothing led them to a suspect. No one they spoke with was difficult or uncooperative. Sure, some of the people they interacted with were, shall we say, more interesting to law enforcement than others, despite having an alibi for the time of her disappearance. But the result is the same. Connie is gone, and no one can find her. Alternatively, what if someone offered Connie a ride? Picture her. She's a petite blonde in a party dress, walking alone through downtown Mount Clemens at 11.30 on Friday night. No jacket, no purse, and maybe she's not walking steady. Maybe she's still carrying her shoes. Listeners, I believe that Connie was drunk when she left the bar. She weighed only 115 pounds, and we know she had at least four drinks that evening, starting with a few beers at Greg's apartment before going to the hayloft, where the trio ordered more drinks. Hey, lady, you want a ride? If Connie accepted, she could have literally gone anywhere, and it's not outside the realm of possibility that she was snatched, literally pulled into a vehicle and no one noticed. Or if they did notice, perhaps they didn't realize what was happening. And I have to admit that if I had to pick a theory for this case, a theory to put money on, someone picked her up. Either someone she made a collect call to from that pizzeria payphone, they arrived to collect her and there was a disagreement, one that left Connie dead. Or Connie accepted a ride from a stranger and that stranger had no intention of taking her home. And we know that there are no shortage of monsters. In the early 1990s, we had serial killer Leslie Allen Williams. He was responsible for the murders of four young women, well, four that we know of, in 1991 and 1992. And Williams wasn't alone. 
David Bunerkemper was a known rapist and possible murderer who died in prison a few years ago. In 1992, Kemper was charged with physical and sexual assaults of women in Oakland and Wayne County. It is not outside the realm of possibility that one of these men, or another as-yet-unnamed predator, was in Mount Clemens that evening. In the days after Connie disappeared, her car remained at Greg's apartment, at least until her brother grabbed a spare set of keys and brought the car back to the Bostick home in Madison Heights. Her parents waited by the phone. Connie's mother told the Detroit News that this was not like Connie. She wouldn't stay away without calling. Then June became July, and there was no more news about Connie, not in the paper and not from law enforcement. The initial investigation into her disappearance was handled by Mount Clemens Police, as that's where she was last seen, and Madison Heights Police, because that's where she lived with her parents at the time she went missing. The disappearance of Connie Lynn Royce was a joint investigation. Both departments worked it and followed up on leads from 1990 to 1992. Her parents, George and Mary, offered up a reward fund with $2,000, hoping that someone would lead them to Connie. But two years of working the case, two years of a reward waiting, and Connie's case still went cold. It didn't go cold for her friends or her family, but without any new information, there was nothing new to pursue, no avenues to run down. In 2009, the Macomb County Sheriff's Department reopened her missing persons case, and the case is now under the jurisdiction of the Sheriff's Department because, we go back to 2005, citing budget concerns, the Mount Clemens City Council voted to end police services for the city and contract with the Sheriff's Department. Initially, this was supposed to be a temporary move, with a plan to review the change after five years in 2010. Apparently, allowing the Sheriff's Department to patrol Mount Clemens was a good arrangement for the city and the county, because today, in 2019, almost 15 years later, the Macomb County Sheriff's Office is still patrolling the city of Mount Clemens, and they have jurisdiction over the 1990 disappearance of Connie Lynn Royce. When I reached out to the Madison Heights Police about Connie's case, they still have her initial missing persons report, but the bulk of her file is now with the Macomb County Sheriff, where it is an open investigation. Starting in 2009, the Macomb County Sheriff's Office re-interviewed Connie's friends and family. They went back to the people who saw her that night at the hayloft. They re-interviewed her siblings, her parents, her date that night, Greg, and his friend, Brad. The men she was with on Friday, June 1st, 1990, have not been in any legal trouble or shown any inclination that they could have been involved in Connie's disappearance. The video surveillance at the bar backs up their lack of involvement as well. Both Greg and Brad went looking for her outside after she left, then returned to the hayloft awaiting her return. And remember, Greg wasn't Connie's boyfriend. They'd met just a week earlier, although, if you watch the footage of them entering the hayloft, their body language shows affection. You can see Connie touching his arm or his back in a warm way. I think that Connie was attracted to Greg, which makes the bizarre way she left the bar that evening even more troubling. As part of reopening the investigation in 2009, the Macomb County Sheriff performed searches of her family's property, including places owned by her sister, Georgia, and in 2010, they searched a former family residence along the Clinton River off Old Kerner Road in Clinton Township. 
They even did some digging in the area, but no evidence of Connie was discovered. Another frustrating aspect about her case is that Connie had so little with her when she vanished, just herself, her clothing, and her shoes. No heavy or valuable jewelry, no handbag with ID or credit cards. This left little for searchers to look for. Few things left behind in the wake of her disappearance. There were no credit cards to be used at revealing locations, no valuable rings or a necklace to pawn. Connie left with literally just the clothes on her back, and this made her disappearance all the more mysterious. So, who was Connie Lynn Royce? Connie, whose maiden name was Bostick, was a 1984 graduate of Lamphere High School in Medicine Heights, Michigan. She was the youngest daughter of four children. She had two older siblings, Georgia and Fred, who were more than a decade older than her. She also had a younger brother, Chuck, who was three years her junior. Connie grew up in a modest ranch home on the northeast side of Madison Heights, and by age 24, she'd been married and divorced. After the divorce, Connie moved back home with her parents, who, at the time of her disappearance, were older, in their 60s, and Connie's sister, Georgia, was already in her early 40s. Following her divorce, Connie had a relationship with someone new, and this relationship lasted from the fall of 1989 through May of 1990, perhaps for six or eight months. And at the tail end of this relationship, police were called to the home to intervene in a domestic dispute. There was no physical violence, but there was a lot of yelling. And the pair split up after this blow-up argument which involved the police. But on May 30th, just before she disappeared, the now-former boyfriend reached out to her, perhaps to reconnect, but Connie was not interested. It was pretty clear she considered their relationship to be over. If you're wondering about the ex-boyfriend, because, of course, that's one of the first places you look, law enforcement did verify his alibi, and they checked the alibi of her former husband. Neither man appears to be a workable suspect in this case. I also need to mention that a drunken, barefoot departure from a location was not new behavior for Connie. And I say this not to be critical of her, but to show a pattern of behavior. In either January or February of 1990, Connie quarreled with the previously mentioned boyfriend, and when they couldn't reach resolution, she stomped off without her shoes. Of course, in this case, it was much colder outside, and Connie did make it back home safely, but heading out barefoot was something she'd done at least once before. The location where Connie was last seen, both the Hayloft and the Domino's Pizza, where she may have used the phone, are just a couple of blocks from the Clinton River. In the days following her disappearance, divers went into the river to search for her. Divers also searched a nearby water treatment plant, thinking she may have had an accident there, but these searches did not turn up any sign of her. After she went missing, there were sightings of Connie at the Newport Apartments in Mount Clemens. These sightings were not verified, and the Newport Apartments, at the time, were a low-income complex and a frequent stop for Mount Clemens police calls. I'm trying to nicely say that the Newport Apartments was not the safest place for someone to hang out by themselves late at night, particularly an intoxicated woman out by herself. In the almost 30 years since Connie vanished, numerous leads and tips have been followed up on. 
Dozens, if not hundreds of witnesses have been interviewed. There have been news stories and missing posters, but not one bit of it has led to Connie. The hayloft where she was last seen, it closed a few years ago, and the payphone outside what once was Domino's Pizza is long gone. But here we are, still looking for Connie. While researching this case, I took a look at a social media group for Lamphere High School, Connie's alma mater. And Connie's story is shared there as well, her friends and classmates wondering what became of the pretty petite blonde they knew from childhood. Alas, there are no answers in her case, but Connie is remembered, and she is missed. If you have information about the disappearance of Connie Lynn Royce, please contact the Detective Bureau at the Macomb County Sheriff's Office. They can be reached at area code 586-307-9358. Even if you spoke with police at the time of her disappearance, or feel that your information is insignificant, please call. If Connie is still alive, she would be 54 years old. Already Gone is a true crime podcast focused on cases from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. We will return with new episodes on Monday, April 15th, 2019. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Thank you.